Many have doubts about God, whether he can be trusted. To those, God is hardly a name. It's just an irrelevant, dusty noun. To many believers, God is simple, minimal, distant. That view of God fails to do justice to the multifaceted master of creation who holds the universe in his grasp. The Bible can serve as a prison, taking the white light of our understanding and dividing it into a spectrum of dazzling colors. Just as every hue is contained in white light, all of God's character qualities are revealed through his many and varied names. Shalom, Abba, Adonai, Jehovah, El Shaddai. Each name, each color, offers a unique perspective. While one color may emphasize his power, another shows him as the perfect friend. Another color reveals him to be the father we've always wanted. Another shows a leader to be followed. He shines as the God of provision, the source of wisdom, a safe haven offering unconditional acceptance. Don't settle for a black and white icon. Know that God is colorful, vibrant, and vivid. Get to know the high-definition, technicolor God. You know, when a young couple begins to have kids, one of the hurdles they have to overcome is settling on a name. You know, if you have kids, maybe you did what Patty and I did. We bought one of those name books, and we poured through it looking for just the right name. But choosing a name's not easy, is it? I mean, some names you like, but they remind you of that kid that pulled your hair in elementary school. Another name reminds you of, uh, of the neighbor that picked his nose constantly. Or the bully that picked on you while you were at school. I mean, as parents, we will invest countless hours looking for just the right name. Now, why? That's because the name has to fit. Now, when it comes to a name for God, do you know one name would not do? There are over 200 different names for God throughout the Bible, each one uh, really describing God's character in unique detail. In fact, in the series on the names of God, uh, we've talked about how the names are like a prism. A prism takes that which is invisible light and displays it in the colors of, a rain, of the rainbow. But did you know the names of God are also like the facets of a diamond? I mean, when light shines into a diamond, it refracts. And it creates all sorts of differences by the way it refracts, depending upon the cut of the diamond and uh, the angle of observation. I mean, you can look at a diamond and you can see the brilliance of the diamond and the light and then turn it and suddenly you're admiring its depth. I mean, from, from one direction, the light seems to dance. From the other direction, it seems more subtle. Now, we love diamonds because well, it, it reflects light in so many different and unique ways. Well, the names of God are just like uh, the facets of a diamond. Uh, they describe God's character and God's 
person. For, for instance, the name Elohim is a name used by God in the Bible. In fact, it's the very first name for God in the book of Genesis. I mean, this name describes God as powerful, omnipotent, the creator of this vast universe and is the sustainer, the faithful sustainer of it all. But that's just one facet of the diamond. Another name for God is El Elyon. Uh, this is a name that describes God as being sovereign, uh, the one who is in charge of the movements of history, the circumstances of life. By the way, did you know that very name is the name used by Daniel when he was thrown into the den of lions? It was also the name used by Daniel's friends when they were cast into the fiery furnace. El Elyon, the one who's in charge of the circumstances of my life. And then there's the name Adonai. Adonai means master, owner, Lord. It's the name used by Isaiah when he was thrust before the throne of God. All he could say is Adonai, Adonai, my master, my Lord. You see, each name is a different facet of the diamond showcasing not only God's character, but also His person. Now, now, you may be sitting there and wondering if the God of the Bible is even real, or if the names for God in the Bible aren't just made up by some human being somewhere in the distant past. Well, if you're not sure what you believe or not believe, let me just ask you this. Wouldn't you want what the Bible is presenting? What, wouldn't you want what the Bible is offering? I mean, wouldn't you want to know that there is a being out there who is engaged with your life in charge of the events of life, who's in control so you don't have to worry and you can trust that being? I mean, wouldn't you want uh, someone out there who, who thinks what you say matters? And what you do matters and would listen to what you say and do. And wouldn't you want somebody out there who would offer you help in time of need and would give you wisdom as you need it so you live better? I mean, we all seek those things in life, don't we? And yet the names of God reflect those aspects of God's character that He wants to offer you. So I want to encourage you to set aside your doubts for just a few moments this morning and think with me how knowing the names of God might actually benefit you. And I want to do that by introducing you to the name, the, the only name for God requested by God. And it's found in Exodus chapter 3 in the Old Testament. In fact, in that passage, you'll find that God is introducing himself to a man named Moses. Now, in order to do that, God's got to get Moses' attention. So what does he do? He sets fire to a bush up on a hill. But this bush is unique. It doesn't burn up. It's not consumed. And as Moses notices that bush and notices it's not consumed, he becomes curious. He wants to go see this unique phenomenon up on the hill. So he leaves his herds behind. And he hikes up the hill, and it's here that God introduces himself 
to Moses for the very first time. And it's here that God invites Moses to lead the children of Israel out of captivity in Egypt. And it's here that God introduces himself to Moses by his most personal name. Let's eavesdrop on the conversation. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, notice what it says. And then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said, I am who I am. Thus, you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Did that hit you kind of strange? A strange name to be called I am? And he says, I am who I am. It sounds like that cartoon character Popeye. I am what I am, doesn't it? But, but I am is probably the best way to translate uh, the Hebrew word here mentioned for God's name. And that is the name Yahweh. Yahweh. You see, in the Old Testament, it was written in Hebrew. That's the language of Israel, the language of Hebrew. And the phrase I am is, um, is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is um, related to the word um, Jehovah when we translate it into English. So Yahweh becomes Jehovah when we not translate it, but transliterate it into English. Now, a transliteration is taking uh, Hebrew letters and substituting English letters for the Hebrew letters. In other words, Aleph becomes A, Beit becomes B, Gimel becomes G, uh, Hate becomes H. And when you do that, uh, the name Yahweh transliterates into the word Jehovah. And by the way, every time that word Jehovah is used in your Bible, it's designated this way. Capital L, little capital O, little capital R, little capital D. That's the way it's written in our Bible. So you can know where that name of God is used. Uh, let's look at the rest of the conversation. Uh, Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord. Now, did you notice? There's the word, Lord. Uh, capital L, little capital O, little capital R, little capital D. That's the name Jehovah. Jehovah, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Now, that word translated God in that verse is really the Hebrew word Elohim that I mentioned earlier, referring to the Creator God, the one who sustains life. That's Elohim. And every time that word is found in our English Bibles, it is written capital G, little o, little d. So you can know when you're reading the word Elohim. But, but do you see what God's saying here? You see what he's saying to Moses? He's saying, hey, Moses, look at this. The God who created life, the God who sustains life, Moses, that's really me. That's who I am. I mean, that's what is going on here. In fact, the name Jehovah is used over 6,800 times throughout the Bible. It's the most common name for God in the Bible, but don't let its commonality fool you. I mean, this name is pregnant with meaning. 
I mean, the name Jehovah is unique to all other names of God in the Bible. It's unique because all the other names describe what God does, but Jehovah is different. It describes who God is, His nature, His being. Remember, it was God who said to Moses, I am who I am. In other words, He's not saying, I am the great I have been. For God does not live in the past, nor does He have a beginning. And He's not saying, I am the great I will become, because God is totally complete as He is, not needing anything to be added to Him. What He's saying is, I am the great right now, meaning that God is not bound by our time in our space. The English language is totally inadequate in trying to translate this word into um, uh, this word into English. Uh, so I, I want to kind of demonstrate what it is. Let's say that this yardstick represents time and space. Okay. Now it, it begins here, the creation of the universe. And it ends here with the destruction of heaven and earth. Now, if that's true and we exist on this timeline, then God is located here. Not on the line, but above the line. He's not bound by anything on this line. He has no beginning. He has no end. He doesn't become. He hasn't been. I mean, He is above it all. He just is. You see, by using the name Jehovah, God is saying that He is totally complete. He's absolutely pure, not needing anything in order to exist. In other words, you could say God is the God of completeness. He is perfect. He is perfect. Now, the nation of Israel... uh, grasp this idea of the perfection of God, the fact that God is perfect and living above or separate from His creation, so much so they feared bringing God too close to them. Did you know that they refused to say this name for God? In synagogues today across the world, they won't even say this name or read it out loud. But it's more than that. It's not that they just won't say it. They also won't write the name. Instead, they will substitute the name Adonai for God, or they will um, write the name in all consonants, leaving out the vowels as a way of reminding their nation that God is totally separate and unapproachable in His perfection. In other words, there's a phrase for that. God is holy, other, separate. Now, why would you want a God that's perfect? How would that benefit us? Well, a God that's perfect, I want you to think about how we long for perfection in everyday life. I mean, if you're a lawyer, I mean, you want perfect justice, don't you? You want the truth to be known so that you're client could be found innocent. How many times have you said that's just not fair? All that points to our longing for perfection. In fact, I mentioned this in the equipping service last week, but a number of years ago, uh, when my wife was pregnant with our daughter, Laura, 
She was in her fourth month of pregnancy with her. Uh, when I got a call at the office, uh, it was Patty on the other end. She was crying and she said, come home now, Doug, come home now. Well, I immediately left the office. I raced home to find my wife lying on the living room floor, just gripped with pain. Well, I picked her up. I put her in the car. I rushed her to the hospital. We got there. The the doctors immediately started her on a, a morphine drip to try to abate the intense pain that she was feeling. And because they didn't know what was causing the problem, they kept her under observation and admitted her. Well, after about two days, they concluded that since Patty has Crohn's disease, that what she must be experiencing is some kind of obstruction. But we've had obstructions before. Never one quite like this. For the next four months, Patty was as much in the hospital as she was out of the hospital. I mean... Sheer determination, I believe, caused Patty to hang on to the baby. But at a time when a woman should be gaining weight in pregnancy, Patty was losing weight. As time progressed, I remember looking at her. I could see the ribs protruding from her side. She she began to look emaciated. She couldn't stand up straight. She looked broken. It was almost as if she was just going to drift away. Well, after three months of, three long months of being in constant pain, Patty's water finally broke on Easter morning, six weeks before her due date. Uh, She was home for Easter. I rushed her back to the hospital. We were met with a team of surgeons. About 20 minutes later, our daughter Laura was born. Six weeks premature, just five pounds. I could set her in the palm of my hand. She looked so small. But, but, but what the doctors discovered next shocked everyone. I mean, Patty had been completely misdiagnosed. She had not had an obstruction for the past three months. She had lived with a ruptured appendix for the past three months. You don't live with a ruptured appendix for three days, much less three months. The doctors couldn't tell me whether she would survive or not. Watching Patty over the next six months heal from that mistake was just grueling. And it made me wish for a more accurate diagnosis. You see, that's our longing for perfection. You see, you and I long for perfection because we live in a world that's so imperfect. So imperfect. But saying God is perfect, I mean, that kind of makes God seem impersonal, doesn't it? It makes, us, makes him feel distant, like, well, he's unengaged with our life. In fact, uh, British philosopher and uh, mathematician Bertrand Russell uh, put it this way. He said, if we could strip away all the mystery of the universe and get to the core of creation, we would find that God could be explained by a mathematical equation. Really? A mathematical equation? I mean, no wonder Bertrand Russell was an atheist. I mean, who would want a personal relationship with a mathematical equation? But, but is that the way you see God? 
I mean, do you see him? He's distant, is unengaged, impersonal. I mean, the problem with Bertrand Russell's view is it fails to explain one thing. I mean, how could human personality come from something so impersonal? How could, say, your quirky old Uncle Bob come from a mathematical equation? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Trying to define God as perfect is like trying to define a kiss. Now, you could define a kiss as two mandibles pressing together for a certain duration of time with or without the exchange of bodily fluids. But anybody who's kissed somebody knows that's so not a kiss. I mean, a kiss is so much more than that. In fact, watch the video screen for a moment. Now, that's a kiss. So you might not be able to explain a kiss, but Lord have mercy, you know one when you experience one, don't you? I mean, trying to define God as perfect is like trying to explain a kiss. It is so much more than we ever imagined. It's more than simply the mind behind it all, the the chest master. You see, perfection is only one aspect of the diamond. Jehovah also means that God is a God of compassion. In other words, He's also personal. In fact, I want you to notice how Psalm 135 describes Jehovah. Beginning in verse 14, it says, For the Lord. Now, did you recognize the word then? Lord, that's capital L, little o, little r, little d. That's the word Jehovah. For Jehovah will judge his people. Now, he can do that because he's perfect. He's the fairest of all judges. He takes everything into account. He's the perfect judge. So Jehovah will judge his people and he will have compassion on his servants. Did you see it? In that single verse, two aspects of the diamond are mentioned. Two facets of this name Jehovah are brought to the surface. There's Jehovah who is perfect, the perfect judge. And at the same time, there's Jehovah who is compassionate. Now, that word passion or compassion is an interesting word. Do you know it comes from a Hebrew word that means guts, bowels, intestines? I mean, when the Bible says that Jehovah is moved with compassion, it's talking about God's gut being wrenched. His heart being torn open. And the most vulnerable parts of him are being laid bare. But this word compassion in the Hebrew also has roots that go back to the womb. In other words, God's compassion for you is such a deep, powerful, central emotion. It can only be described as the anguish a mother goes through in delivering a child. In fact, I love the way one writer puts it. He puts it this way. When God is moved to compassion, the Scriptures is saying, the ground of all being shook, the source of all life trembled, the heart of all love burst open, and the unfathomable depths of His relentless tenderness was laid bare. You know, you see God's compassion in the book of, of Judges in the Old Testament. 
I mean, in that book, we see time and time again how Israel, God's people, abandons Jehovah. They end up prostituting themselves after other gods. And as a result, the book of Judges says that Israel suffers greatly under their disobedience. So what's God's response to Israel's disobedience? Well, in Judges, it says, My soul grieved for the misery of Israel. My soul grieved. I mean, do you see it? When, when Israel was afflicted, Jehovah felt afflicted. I mean, this God who is perfect, He weeps when we weep. You see, God's perfection means that, well, He does, definitely knows right from wrong. And as a result, he has to condemn what is wrong. But at the same time, his compassion moves him to look for a way to forgive and to redeem. You see, when we stray, God's heart has always been bent in the direction of looking for a way to draw us back into relationship with him. So every time you run across the name Jehovah, capital L, little O, little R, little capital D, that name should remind us that God is ever seeking the restoration of mankind. I mean, you've got to remember, it was Jehovah who was the one who sought Adam and Eve in the garden after they had rebelled against God. And it's Jehovah and His name that's mentioned time and time again as the one who developed the sacrificial system in order to bring mankind close without compromising the justice of His perfection. And it's Jehovah, the perfect, the unapproachable God, who is so moved with compassion that He figures out a way to bring us close to Him. But there's a third facet to this diamond. And it can be seen throughout the entire Old Testament. Because throughout the entire Old Testament, you discover that God is about the business of establishing covenants with His people. I mean, you think about it, God established a covenant with Noah promising uh, never to flood the earth again. And he established a covenant with Abraham uh, promising that he would give him a land and a people, descendants. He also established a covenant with Moses promising to restore Israel to the land and a covenant with David promising that his limit, in, through his lineage would come Messiah. I mean, in fact, did you know every time a covenant is ratified in the Old Testament, the name Jehovah is mentioned. It appears. Now, why? Well, it's because Jehovah is not only perfect. He's not only personal. It means that He is faithful. Jehovah means He keeps His promises. You know, I find it interesting that in the Old Testament, God establishes covenants with His people and not contracts. I mean, contracts are popular today. I mean, you can contract for goods and services or cash. A contract can be uh, formal or informal. And one of the great values of a contract is that it specifies the responsibilities of relationships of those entering the contract. But did you know God doesn't establish contracts? Instead, He establishes covenants. Now, why is that? Well, there's a huge difference. When a contract is broken, well, by, it can be broken by one or both of the parties. When they fail at their end of the contract, well, the 
contract is over. So one or both parties can break a contract. For instance, let's say a patient at a doctor's office doesn't show up for an appointment. Now, is that doctor obligated to call that patient to see what happened, to see why he wasn't there? No. What, what does the doctor do? He just goes to his next appointment, and his appointment secretary uh, notes that this person didn't show up. So the next time this person calls and tries to get an appointment at the doctor's office, they might find it rather difficult. Why? Because, you see, that patient broke an informal contract. So the doctor was no longer obligated to that patient. But God doesn't establish contracts. He establishes covenants. A covenant is more like the ties between parent and child than doctor and patient. If a child doesn't show up for dinner at night, that parent's obligation, unlike a doctor's, does not end, does it? No, that parent goes out and looks for the child. Make sure the child is okay. Make sure that child is cared for. He goes and finds the child. In other words, one member's failure does not destroy the relationship. Now, you see, when we find ourselves unfaithful to God, our unfaithfulness does not destroy the relationship with God. It doesn't break the covenant. You see, that's why the Scripture says that He is faithful even when we are faithless. So, Jehovah's covenants, well, they're unconditional and they're established by grace. Now, now to understand the meaning of grace, we've got to go all the way back to its root in the Old Testament, to an old word that means to stoop or bend low. Now, here is where the name Jehovah comes full circle. You see, as as we looked at this, we saw that God is perfect and He exists above His creation, far above it, separate from it. But because of His compassion, He stoops, He bends low in order to draw us close. You see, that's grace. I love the way one person defined it. He said this, love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. But love that stoops, well, that's grace. You see, Jehovah is the God of grace. I mean, to show grace means to extend favor to someone who doesn't deserve it, who can't possibly earn it. And every time the word grace appears in the Bible, it comes with the mark of being undeserved. In fact, during a conference on comparative religions, a group of experts got together and they were debating um, whether one belief, if any, was unique to the Christian faith. Well, they began eliminating the possibilities. Uh, What about the Incarnation? Well, there were different versions of God taking on human form in other religions, so that wasn't unique. What about the resurrection? Well, other religions had accounts of of returning from the dead. Well, the debate continued on and on until C.S. Lewis stumbled into the room. 
What's the rumpus about? He said. They looked at him and said, What makes Christianity unique to all other world religions? That's easy, Lewis said. It's grace. It's grace. You see, the name Jehovah means that God extends His favor toward us, not because we deserve it. No, we rebelled against Him. And not because He needs it. Remember, He is above creation. He is perfect. He needs nothing added to Him or nothing taken away. But grace is free because it's self-originated in God alone and proceeds from this one who is completely free not to be gracious at all. You see, God's grace means really understanding all aspects of the diamond called Jehovah. I mean, He is wholly other and doesn't need us, but at the same time, He is compelled by compassion to move in close, to covenant with us by extending us grace. The story is told of Fiorillo LaGuardia. He was the mayor of New York City during uh, the darkest times of the Great Depression. On one cold, blistery winter night in 1935, uh, he found himself at night court in one of the poorest uh, districts in all of New York. He decided to give the judge the night off, so uh, LaGuardia took the bench. Case came before him of a woman who had stolen a loaf of bread. When he inquired about what had taken place, the woman said, Well, my, my daughter's husband has abandoned us. My daughter is home and sick, and my grandchildren are starving to death. Well, the store owner refused to drop the charges. He told the judge, he said, uh, it's a really bad neighborhood, Your Honor. Uh, we have to make an example so others won't do this. Well, LaGuardia sighed deeply and looked the woman in the eye. And he said, you know, he's right. The law makes no exceptions. You are guilty. That'll be $10 or 10 days in jail. But even as he was passing sentence... He had already reached into his pocket. He took out a $10 bill and he put it down on the bench. And he said, and I now remit $10 in payment for your fine. But not only that, I find everybody in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a city that would force a grandmother to steal a loaf of bread in order to feed her grandchildren. Bailiff, collect the fine from everyone. Well, that night, they collected $47.50 from everyone in the courtroom, including a red-faced grocery store owner. And, they, and um, LaGuardia gave the money to the woman. I mean, do you see? Uh, LaGuardia extended mercy to this woman by not giving her what she deserved. She deserved to go to jail. But at the same time, he extended grace to her by giving her what she did not deserve. You see, that's God's heart towards you. You see, knowing this particular name of God is like turning on the lights that allows you to see the length and the depth and the breadth of His character. But it also allows you to see the depth of His passion 
our compassion toward you. You know, maybe you have thought about God and have thought, you know, I'm not sure I know that aspect of the diamond, that facet you've been talking about. The the God who is compassionate, who will do whatever it takes to move in and to move up close. Maybe you've just seen God as distant. It's perfect out there, but not seeing Him in a tender connection with you. Let me encourage you this week to ask God to move in close. To ask Him to show up and get a message through to you. He likes doing that. It's so His character to engage our hearts. You could pray something like this. God, I know you're there. I know you're out there. But I want to know you as the compassionate one. The one who established those covenants. Would you move in close this week and reveal yourself to me? Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you that trying to explain what you're like is next to impossible. One day we'll know. We'll see you face to face. And things will be clear. But here in the fog of living on this earth, would you continue to engage our hearts and woo us closer to your heart? May we see more clearly your love and your compassion for us. And may that love draw us closer to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for coming. If this is your first time at Horizon, we would love to put a name with a face. Please drop by the hearth room, third door on the left, and we'd love to greet you down there. And if you came prepared to give, offering boxes are out in the hall just to the left as you leave. Thanks for coming and enjoy the rest of your day.